Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Dean Detloff and Matt Barinko. Dean and Matt are the hosts of the podcast, Magnificast. You can get connected with Dean and Matt and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Matt Barinko and Dean Detloff with me, both of whom are the co-hosts of The Magnificast, a podcast you absolutely need to listen to if you haven't already. But beyond that, you both are two people with PhDs doing what everybody, if you get a PhD in theology or something like that, that you all have to do. You have to become a podcaster or a barista. And so you both are doing that. uh, And you're just two dudes hanging out listening to me without you and doing some communism, right? That's it. That's right. That's the best capitalism has for us in this world. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure it is. So with that said, uh, I asked this question to every single guest. Who is Matt Brinko to Matt Brinko? And then I'll ask the same question to you, Dean. But yeah, let's let's have you go first, Matt. Who's Matt Brinko to Matt Brinko? Uh, yeah, uh, Christian, father, husband, uh, communist. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's all that's needed to be known about you. Now yeah, we should have done, right. you know, we wretched, do, wretched uh, sinner. Matt. Are you wretched sinner? Slave to Christ? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably <laughs> throw a wretched sinner in there. Probably a few other ones, but uh, those those ones mainly, yeah. The dirty cherry on top. I was going to say, Matt, you should have, uh, we should have done who am I to you and who are you to me? Because um, to me, oh, Matt boy. is certainly Christian dad, father, husband, et cetera, communist and so on. Also, um, ex-worship, uh, band master uh great at video games um 10 out of 10 scott archival uh knowledge carrier uh, a lot of weird titles that matt has in my brain i guess i'm discovering all of a sudden but yeah there's a lot of layers to matt bernico in particular so many layers just like shrek yeah uh, i'm like an onion. and, and onions <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> and dean who is dean detloff to dean detloff yeah okay um Christian husband, not a father, also communist. Um, uh, let's see, what am I right now? I feel like my identity is so fluid, always changing. Right now, I'm uh, <laughs> overworked, but uh, represented by a great union. That's what I'll say. I, I mean, it could be worse. You could be not unionized, right? <laughs> Sorry. And my job is awesome. So I, I'm overworked with very good work. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm feeling it. <laughs> I'm in the middle of it. I would imagine so. Well. With all that said, let's talk about Christianity and communism. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a while. And honestly, this is something that I'm really curious to learn a little bit more about as well. I'm sure my listeners are certainly wanting to get to know a little bit more about like what exactly is communism? Why 
why should you be a Christian communist, all of that. But I'm really curious for both of you, uh, if you both want to answer this, but let's say you both got in an elevator and somebody quickly finds out, hey, you're Christian communist, and you have to explain then in that elevator what exactly is communism. So if you're in that little elevator speech, how would you both describe or define communism? First, I'd say if you're a police officer, you have to tell me. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I was going to say, being in in an elevator with somebody, with a stranger, and I have to talk to them, it sounds like hell. That sounds like the worst (laughs) situation to be in. But all right, I'll play along. Well, it it depends on how long the elevator is. But I think that... um, Let's say you're not going up the Sears Tower. Let's say you're just, you know, a little, you know, hotel elevator (laughs) or something. Yeah, okay. Well, I think that people think of communism as this, like, scary Cold War kind of thing. Um, You know, it's like a particular type of governmental system that you might have. And, you know, that's fine. It is that for sure. But it's also so much more. And people don't know this. I think that the way I like to think about communism and the way I tell people about it um, has, it kind of comes from one of Karl Marx's writings, uh, The German Ideology, which is a really boring essay where he's just talking about like German philosophy and how they're wrong. It's great. Um, It's great for me, but nobody else. Um, Anyways, in in, in the German Ideology, Karl Marx says that communism is for us, not a stable state of things, which is to be established, an ideal to which reality will have to adjust We call communism the real movement, which abolishes the present state of things. The conditions of this movement result from the premises now in existence. And I like this definition the most. I think it's the most helpful for people to get their brains around it because communism is not like a set goal that people, you know, are working towards, um, you know, making concrete in the world right now in terms of like governments or politics or something. But it is a movement that is pushed forward by activists and workers Uh, that attempts to abolish the contradictions and the horror that is capitalism. Um, It is a movement away from from privation and individual, I don't know, focuses on individualism uh, toward like a a way of life that's centered around, um, you know, the common good of people. Communism, the root word there is, you know, community, commons. So that's it. And then I'd get off the elevator and I'd never see that person again. Like communion? Yeah, communion. Throw it in there, man. Why not? All these words, they're related etymologically. We love it. How about for you, Dean? Yeah, I mean, uh, if I had to do it, maybe I'd go to the good book itself, um, which is something that communists have done historically. The the catchphrase of communists. Oh, I thought you were talking about the, the Bible, not Das Kapital. I, I was talking about the Bible. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it shows up in Das Kapital in some ways and, and elsewhere, too. Um, there's a, since the 1800s, it's sort of been sloganized as, uh, from each according to their capacity or ability and to each according to their need. Right. So that's the, the brief sort of pitch of communism. So whatever you have the ability and capacity to, that's what you should do. You should find a way to exercise that in society. And if you have a need, it should be met. That's the, the simple equation. So all that stuff that Matt's saying is right. It's the abolition of capitalism. It's all that kind of stuff, but most simply it's, uh, (laughs) people vibing together, figuring it out, right? And those definitions, that kind of phrase comes from the biblical text. It comes from Acts and Mm. uh, some Pauline stuff here and there. So I like to stick with the Bible, just like our good friend Karl Marx on that score, at least. (laughs) And we'll definitely talk a little bit more about those connections between communism and Christianity. But before that, all right, you just both talked a little bit about communism and how you both would maybe define it. 
what is capitalism then? Because that seems to be a really key point if you're trying to understand communism is to also understand capitalism. Oftentimes I hear, especially from, I grew up in South Dakota, so a lot of people I know, super conservative or even libertarian, love capitalism. And a lot of times they talk about it as if it's just the free market and that's it. But then as I start to explore a little bit more, it's not just this free market. It's not just people exchanging goods. What exactly then is capitalism and why is it something that should be abolished, like you both said? That's a great question. I like that more than the what is communism question, I think, because there's like <laughs> more maybe concretely that you can point to and be like, that's kind of what it is. But it's also harder to answer in some ways because capitalism I think there's an easy answer to this, but a more complicated one that's more true. So I'll say the easy one, then complicate it, and then Matt can tell me what everything I left out. So I think the the easy answer is capitalism is a an organization of our our productive forces or our economy that privileges capitalists, which is to say the people who own the means of production privately. That's what capitalism is from a kind of Marxist perspective. That's the arrangement, right? The capitalists own the, the means of production and they employ all kinds of other people. So the rest of us have to sell our labor to a capitalist or somebody at least who can pay us money to survive. But the key is that the arrangement favors the capitalist class, the accumulation of capital within that class. So that's capitalism in a simple sense. I think the more complicated piece is that capitalism is actually a lot of things, right? There's a, a cultural dimension to it. There's a kind of anthropological dimension to it. It changes the way that we think, how we perceive ourselves. There are all these kind of complicated pieces. And there's also multiple ways that capitalism can kind of uh, be itself, right? Capitalism can have uh, slavery in in the United States, right? You can do that in a capitalist economy. Uh, you can have capitalism with more and less state intervention. You can have capitalism with uh, different kinds of folks at the top um, and maybe more or less quote unquote free exchange and so on. Uh, but I think at the most basic, I would want to say it's it's really for a Marxist, at least it's who owns the means of production, who really gets to get the wealth and where does it kind of flow back to at the end uh, for capitalism? It would be the capitalist class. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Uh, I would also, I mean, like Dean said, capitalism is a lot of things, right? It's a it's a whole network of relationships uh, mediated by capital. But, you know, it's also a way of thinking and it's a way of uh, structuring like moral values. And I think that's pretty important too. I mean, for example, like uh, capitalism has a particular logic to it, right? And that logic is to spend, like, you know, spend as little money paying for things as possible and right. like accumulating as much as you can, right? That accumulative logic is, I think is really important to understanding capitalism. And I think also a great way to highlight like how illogical it is. Uh, you know, the idea is exponential growth forever. Uh, you just can't do that on this great finite plan that we have. So anyways, um, yeah, I think, I think what Dean said is right. And then, you know, there's just a, it's a way of thinking. It's a way that uh, people structure their values and justify um, what is basically impossible. So I, one of the kind of questions I could see coming up then is, let's say, for example, all right, you both host a podcast and you were like, you know what, tired of editing it myself. I'm going to hire Mason to edit your, my podcast. Would that then kind of put you in this sort of like capitalist framework then that you own this podcast or whatever, and then you hire me to do the work for it? Like, anyway, I'm just like curious, at what point does something like that turn from, you know, you having communist ideals to now all of a sudden this is a capitalist project? Anyway, I'm, does that kind of make sense? Kind of I'm trying to sort of think through like at what point does something like 
a small business or whatever turn into now this is a big capitalist project like Apple or Amazon or whatever? Yeah, that's a really good question. And something that Marxist debate and other anti-capitalist debate, Marx himself was a really sophisticated kind of thinker. And he had ways of talking about different kind of strata of like capitalism or classes. So for example, um, there's the bourgeoisie. They're the big bads for Karl Marx. He's always trying to say, you got to get rid of these folks. Um, there's also what he calls the petty bourgeoisie or the little capitalists sort of, uh, and that's kind of your small business owners and that sort of thing. Uh, and the key for Marx is that it's not necessarily that like, if you're a petty bourgeois person, you're evil. Like that is probably the most interesting thing about Marxism. It's not that you're a bad person or even a bad boss. Like I've worked for a lot of small businesses and have mostly liked them, um, got along with them, even businesses that my friends own. But the question is kind of the structural relationship. So insofar as your labor, the, the labor that you do creates value that gets sucked back up into somebody else's pockets, you're in an exploitative relationship from a labor mm. perspective. You, you might have other things that make that relationship, I don't know, palatable to you or okay and so on. Um, like I said, I've I've been in a structurally exploitative relationship to bosses that I also very much like. So <laughs> it's a uh, it's all very complicated. Um, but yeah, you know, when we talk about capitalism, we're really talking about how relationships between the people who make wealth and the people who uh, kind of keep that wealth or the value that's generated, how those relationships are are kind of negotiated or mediated. I don't know, Matt. What do you think? When we hire Mason, yeah. we, we we become the capitalist <laughs> bosses. Uh, what will that relationship be like? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Uh, Mason says your resume. We'll check it out. Um, we'll talk about it. No, um, I think that what Dean said is right. It's a good way to think about it. If you want to put it maybe in more material terms, I think um, here, here's a helpful place to look. Um, I don't know if, if you're familiar with this podcast, Mason, but uh, people should be. It's uh, called Working People. And uh, this guy named Max Alvarez makes it. Uh, he's great. I like Max a lot. He's like a great labor reporter. And his podcast is cool because it's really just talking to people who are in labor struggles and kind of seeing like what it, like what's it like what's it going on anyways he did this series of episodes not too long ago I guess maybe a year ago two years ago man I don't know the pandemic has warped my brain I don't know when time <laughs> begins and ends but they were um he was looking at this particular case of this like uh push for unionization at this thing called no evil foods uh no evil is a company that makes like vegan meat alternatives which is very funny. Anyways, and they brand themselves kind of like as a socialist company. Uh, but um, remarkably, they wouldn't let their workers unionize even, right? That they uh, they didn't want that kind of relationship. They didn't want the workers to have that leverage over them. Um, and I guess like that's, you know, a, a union is not socialism. Important to know. It's a long, it's, it, it's a, a union is something done in the same logic that you would with socialism or something, right? It's giving workers a say over their labor. It's trying to like tip those scales back a little bit so that the, um, the relationship with your boss is not completely exploitative or you have some way to kind of bargain the, those terms. So I think that like, that's maybe a, a way to kind of think about that, that problem materially too, right? Like, you know, if you're working a job, do you have a say? Do you, can you negotiate with your boss how much you get paid? Is your boss, uh, you know, like Dean said earlier um, about the sort of like socialist maxim of um, from, you know, from, from each according to their ability to each according to their mean, is that the relationship that you have? Or is it one that's exploitative? You know, um, I think that's maybe a, a way to answer that materially. And uh, union struggles around the country are a great place to watch that unfold because the answer is, is like, 
never do bosses want that for some reason. Mm. And the reason is exactly the reason that Dean said, right? It's it's not because they're mean people. I mean, they might be, who knows? I'm not here to judge anyone's heart. Um, but they are structurally opposed to them because it doesn't benefit them within the uh, larger you know system of capitalism. Yeah, maybe to add just one other piece uh, to kind of complicate it, right? Like I work for a nonprofit and uh, and it's great. I love it. And I love my boss even. I love everybody I work with. It's a fantastic job. The best I've ever had. And I, I get a wage, right? That is set by my organization and so on. So my job is not at like a capitalist enterprise. So I, I'm a wage earner, but I'm not uh, creating like value that gets expropriated by my uh, higher ups or whatever. Like that's sort of not the relationship I have to them. There are still ways you can be exploited in a nonprofit uh, organization for sure. And it happens all the time. And in fact, there are uh, there's kind of a similar story as Matt was just telling. A handful of nonprofits have been trying to unionize in the last couple of years as well, and have been met with lots of resistance. But it's kind of for I don't know weird reasons. It's sort of a different conversation. But uh, all that to say, there's lots of different things happening in a capitalist society, and probably the best thing about learning about something like Marxism, to me at least, is like you can start really naming what those specific things are, getting a better handle on all the complicated relationships and then kind of figure out like where you are in that chain of stuff going on. Uh, so I think that's really useful. So it kind of begs the question, or at least the question that comes in my mind of, is it then possible to have, uh, to create something and then have to either hire somebody or, or, or whatnot to have somebody be a part of you creating a thing in the world and it not being a capitalist relationship between you and that person. Is it is that a thing is that a possible relationship to have? For example, is it possible for you to hire me on to be a part of the Magnificast and for it to not be a capitalist relationship because you've hired me as a employee? Anyway, I'm just is is that even possible within like a communist world or is there a different way to sort of think about that relationship or is there a certain way to have that relationship that does still uh, follow the sort of values and commitments of communism? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. And the, I mean, I think Dean probably has a very good um, materialist answer, but let me give a floppy Christian answer. <laughs> there's a book that I think has really been helpful for me to think about communism, and it is by, um, I guess, one of my mentors in life and former professors, a guy named Richard Gilman Opalski, and it's called uh, the love, or it's called Communism and Love, and so that kind of question is kind of a book, uh, an answer that his, or, I'm sorry, that question is something that his book answers in this really interesting way. Because people will say that, right? Like communism is dreaming up these types of relations between people that like, you know, are, are utopian. We've never seen them before. Um, they're, you know, hard for us to even believe because um, relationships between people are so exploitative and stuff. But um, what he argues in this book, and I think is actually really fascinating is we do see those types of communistic relationships a lot in the world, but maybe we aren't expecting, or we don't think, we don't think about them as communists. Like, so, so he thinks that um, capitalism is, you know, it's about individualism, it's about privation, um, it's about like setting up these like strong boundaries between people and ownership and property, um, whereas communism is much more like love, um, and it's an, an expression of a type of love, right, because you have to sort of like have a relationship with somebody um, where you're trying to do something with them, you know, you know you're a co-conspirator alongside them. So, you know, love is a, is a great, it, it's, it's probably the operational logic for communism. 
Um, and, you know, when you do something with a friend, you make something with, their, with one of your friends, what you're doing is like a communist endeavor because neither of you are really expecting to reap a lot of value from it. And if you are, then like maybe you have your priorities out of order. But like Dean and I make this podcast and I don't, and we, neither of us ever expect to make money from it. And we only do because we have a little like a Patreon and like that's something. But, you know, we don't do it because of that. We do it because we think we want to do it, right? It's an endeavor that we do together, you know, based out of uh, a type of, like, mutual love for one another and, um, you know, a type of friendship. So I, I think that, like, and, and we see those types of bonds other places, too, right? Like, um, uh, particular types of, I mean, even, like, with a partner, like a romantic relationship, what you're doing is a productive relationship. And capitalism wants to find all kinds of ways to screw that over and monetize mm -hmm. it and, and awful things like that, right? And Christianity too. Um, but, you know, a family is a productive relationship that is communist. It's about, it's a, it's a relationship that has uh, different types of logics to it than capitalism. I mean, ho I hope to God no one out there is making their partner, like, pay them for making dinner or something. But, you know, that's, what, that's at least one way to answer it. Only if it's really good ravioli will I do that. <laughs> yeah i mean these types of relationships are are like maybe hard for us to conceptualize because our brains are so completely rotted by capitalism but i think it's important to to recognize all those places where like we we keep capitalism out of the equation right um friendships love um you know even like when you're working with somebody in, in like a school project or something you know you're doing all of these things that are uh counter to capitalist uh ideas and uh, they they exist all around us if we have eyes to see I think that's great. I don't want to say anything else about it. Matt got it. Got yeah, it man. one. Well, it, it reminds me <laughs> of some of the inner relationships that different species have with one another. Uh, I, I'm reading Braiding Sweetgrass right now, and it's just fascinating to understand how different um, species within an ecosystem relate to one another. And they certainly are not operating out of a uh, framework where they're trying to exploit one another different species are trying to benefit one another in their relationship. And that's, so it's really interesting to see even, even other species are not operating out of like a capitalist framework. Obviously they're maybe not necessarily conscious of that, but certainly other uh, species are not doing that. And so why would we as a certain species on this planet do that to one another in our relationships? Yeah. You know, that's one of the wildest things about uh, capitalism and communism generally, because sometimes you get into conversations with capitalist folks who are like, well, capitalism is just the natural way of doing things. That's just how it is. Like, like social we Dar all... Darwinism. And if, yeah, funny enough, oftentimes that really is not the case among different species. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, how ironic that uh, like conservative Christians, they hate Darwin when he talks about like biology, but they do love capitalist Darwinism. Uh, anyway, <laughs> extremely weird. Um, but you know, like, it's true. Well, first of all, if capitalism was the natural state of things, we probably would have had it before like the 1500s. So I don't know. It wasn't natural for most of human history. <laughs> it's extremely recent. Uh, but it's also really interesting. Like Marx would often point to uh, like ants and bees. Boy, did he love ants and bees. And he'd be like, look, they're out here doing a whole thing. They're a collective sort of uh, group. Of course, they have, uh, they're all, you know, matriarchal societies, I guess, ants and bees. I don't know. They got big queens up there. But uh, but the point is that nature doesn't actually show like some kind of single like blueprint for human civilization in one way or the other, right? There are also like species relationships where like, I don't know, kids eat their parents or whatever. I don't want to live in that society. But like right. all that to say, there are these really fascinating kind of ways that we tell ourselves that capitalism is inevitable, that we can only have relationships mediated by capital. But in fact, like the world and, and creation gives us such a wider vision of what's possible. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if we've touched on this quite yet, but it seems like in recent years, largely due to someone like Bernie Sanders, Sanders, there is this kind of conversation around socialism. And it seems like that's a little less scary now to a lot of Americans than the word communism, right? That That's the one that will really shock you. So I'm really curious around, like, what's the difference between communism and socialism? And why does that difference seem to be, at least in America, a little bit more stark and a little bit more uh, contrast? Uh, just because, again, like I mentioned, Socialism seems to be a little, you know, to a certain degree, a little bit more accepted now in America because of someone like Bernie Sanders. But communism still is a step beyond. So anyway, I'm just curious, what is that difference there and why historically, especially now in America, do we still see that stark difference between the two? Yeah, I'll take a stab at it, I guess. I think uh, there's there's a few reasons. Some that are more and less, um, I think, uh, understandable or kind of like good. So, you know, the the bad reason is that the United States spent close to a century and is still uh, spending a lot of time and actual money and funds explicitly poisoning people against communism, right? Like they had to literally jail thousands and thousands of communists over the course of the 20th century and kill and murder them and everything else to basically, you know, turn the American populace against this thing. I mean, there was a, at one point in time in the United States, an extremely powerful and strong communist movement uh, made up of regular people, not weirdos, not people with PhDs, not even really like all kinds of radical folks. You know, even Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker was hanging out with the communists before she converted. So I think it's important to remember that, that like there's a concerted effort in American society to basically destroy communism as a sort of positive association. So that's the bad reason. I think a lot of us are just sucked into that cultural story. I think the the reason that I sympathize with is people don't like um, violence against other people and they don't like um, repression and repressive societies. And I think people, uh, you know, it's true. Communism has, it, it is often achieved uh, through violent means. Um, and there's lots more to be said about that, uh, but people don't like that. And the other piece is communist societies have made real mistakes in how they treat dissent in their own populations and, and still in some cases are, are doing that in really big ways. So I'm sympathetic to that. Like if someone's like, I don't like that, I, I like to say, I don't like that either. That's fine. Um, but I think, you know, socialism is maybe a little more palatable because uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not necessarily sort of putting the, the pedal to the metal on a lot of these kind of issues. So it's, it's more of a reformist kind of uh, story for better and for worse, I think, you know, socialists and communists should be friends, uh, in my opinion, <laughs> there's no reason to drive a huge wedge between us. But um, yeah, I, I think that at least for me, those are the two big things. There's a huge cultural story around it that is not true. And we have to really be honest, I think, about that and, and kind of figure that out for ourselves. Um, and then secondly, people kind of rightly have these kind of moral qualms. And I think we have to be able to also make space for that and then talk it through a little bit on the left. So what's the sort of ideological difference between the two then? Because sometimes we use them interchangeably oftentimes. I mean, I sometimes do that as well, where I use communism and socialism totally interchangeably. But certainly there are uh, ideological differences between the two. And so I'm just curious, what is the difference there between the two? Yeah, I mean, well, going back to what I said in the back in the elevator, if you'll recall, <laughs> communism is the kingdom of God and socialism is your denomination or something. <laughs> That's maybe not a perfect metaphor, but it like it gets you in the in the right direction, right? Like 
and, and that will not work for some people who are socialists and communists and that would be contested. But I think that's at least a way to think about it, right? Like if you are a communist, like that, that's it. There's this idea, communist is, is not like a thing that you achieve. It is like a process in history where you're undoing, you're, um, you're pushing back against privation and um, oppression and, you know, exploitation. Um, socialism is, is though like kind of like the path that you might take to get there in a certain way. Like, and, and that can look a lot of different ways, right? And like, that's a little bit of what Dean's saying though, you know, sometimes it's about violence and people don't like violence, but sometimes it's a more reformist approach. Like for example, the Cuban revolution is a great example, right? It's, it's violent at the very beginning. They have to, um, they have to be, you know, they, they have to fight against the state literally to oust a dictator. And once they do that, then the revolution doesn't stop, right? Just because they ousted a dictator in Cuba doesn't mean that communism is achieved or something. But what it does mean is that like, now they have a path forward past capitalism um, towards something different, right? And the, the revolution is ongoing in the sense that like, now they have to figure out how to live and how to like, how do you serve a country of people? Um, how do you set up the state apparatus so that it serves people and not capitalists? But in other places like Venezuela, you know, you um, Hugo Chavez is uh, an important character uh, in that story. He he was the president of Venezuela for a time, and he was elected. He was a he was a socialist, and he was elected into office, and he made a lot of reforms that um, put Venezuela on a socialist path forward. Right, not necessarily toward communism in that sense, but just like a path forward. Um, so I guess what, what I'm trying to say here is that like socialism is like whatever it is, it's a transition to whatever is after capitalism um, mm. is, is maybe a, thing, a way to think about it ideologically. And communism is that process of getting past capitalism. It's not like a, a strong repressive state or something. It's like mm. it's, it's just history. <laughs> this episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. We've talked a little bit about communism, what it is, what capitalism is, all of that. But now let's get to that Christian piece and that Christian connection. Why should one be a Christian communist? And Dean might have mentioned it, you know, a little bit at the beginning, but yeah, why should a person be a Christian communist? You know, I have such, I was reading this question, you know, you sent the, to the, you sent the question to us beforehand, which I appreciate. And I was having such a hard time with this question because I don't know if I really want people to be a Christian communist. Mm. 
not like, you know, whatever, this is where I found, found myself. And I found this to be a really fruitful way to think about the Bible and politics. And I think that's all great, but I don't know if I really want to convert people to a particular ideology because I don't think that's actually what I'm after in the world. I think that instead of like converting someone to thinking like me, I really just want people to show up. <laughs> I want Christians to show up for stuff. Mm. You know, I want them to show up to marches. I want them to show up to mutual aid events. I want them to show up to the soup kitchen to feed people who are unhoused. I want them to be on the strike line with me. I want them in all of these spaces, right? And I don't think I care exactly what they believe about politics. Um, I mean, I go to a church with some really well-meaning event. Uh, <laughs> sorry, some very well-meaning Episcopalians and like they're liberals <laughs> and that's fine with me because they show up and that's what I really want, right? Mm. So it's like, it's not like um, them believing in a particular thing about the Bible or about God, like that's not necessarily what's getting the work done. I mean, it definitely contributes for sure, but like them showing up and putting in the time and like being there with people who uh, the Bible tells us that we ought to be with, like that seems to me the most important thing. Yeah, I think I'd say something similar. You know, um, most of the people I work with in a solidarity movement are not communist and probably will never be. And that's fine, I think. Uh, like Matt said, it's important just to keep people out. But I'll honor your question anyway, Mason. Uh, and I, I'm going to make the pitch for why I think Christians should at least maybe give it some thought. Um, you know, if you if you don't want it at the end, that's fine. You can still come to the rally and the march and everything else. And I think you should. But uh, I think for me, the question is basically like, do you think that we should live in a world where working and poor people are exploited? I think that's the question that the Christians should ask themselves. And if the answer to that question is no, I, th I think it should be. <laughs> I think if you're a good Christian, it should be no. Then uh, how do how do we get there? What do we do about that? Because we're not going to get there by just praying it away, and we're not going to get there even by voting it away uh, alone. You know, we we should vote whatever. But I think the the question is like, where do we find the framework to really think about why people are poor in the first place? Right, that's capitalism. Uh, why are people exploited and so on? And as Matt was saying, if communism is this really a name for a movement away from that system. That's something I think Christians should get invested in. And I think it's important to recognize, too, that communism is actually a wildly diverse kind of tradition, right? Like what the Soviet Union is doing or did do is different than even what the People's Republic of China is doing, which is different from what Cuba is doing, different from what was going on in Venezuela or Kerala in, in uh, India, all these different places where communists have been fundamental features of social movements, like that's a profound sort of uh, testament to the fact that like, however we get there is going to take a lot of paths. And I think Christians should try to learn from those kinds of situations, both their successes and their failures, because we want a world where people aren't exploited. And mm. at least as far as I can tell, like the communists have not done it perfectly. They've not gotten it 100% right, but they're the people asking the question and I think it's important that we also ask that question and figure out, okay, how can we be part of that movement abolishing the state of things as they are? Mm -hmm. So Matt, along the lines of what Dean was just saying there, what is it about your Christianity that makes you want to be a communist or kind of convinces you or compels you to be a communist? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I grew up evangelical and I think um, there's a lot of baggage I have from that. <laughs> I'm probably still like really trying to figure out but the thing that evangelicalism did teach me to do was take the Bible really seriously, probably too seriously. <laughs> um, and, you know, like when I was going through evangelicalism, I would read things in the Bible about, 
you know, Jesus and the rich young ruler and, you know, what Jesus tells them to do. Or, or you know, you you hear stories, um, all kinds of parables where Jesus is telling, you know, um, some kind of important thing about the forgiveness of debts or uh, the leveling of justice in a society. Or you read the Old Testament and hear about Jubilee or you... Um, you read the prophets and hear about all of the ways that uh, the ruling elite really suck, right? And I think that the the Bible, I mean, Christianity, there's a tradition within it that calls you to really care about people um, who look like Christ, who are in the same social position as Christ. Uh, so I think that's, that's like what shoves me in that direction, right? Um, Christianity is really invested in trying to um, take care of people, especially people who are um, people who have been exploited. And I mean, communism is asking the same questions. Why are people poor in the first place? Like, what is it about our society that we constantly have um, systems of oppression and exploitation? So I don't know. They're both asking the same questions. I think what Dean said is pretty compelling. Um, I like it for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that um, at least that's how I would start to answer that question. Mm-hmm. So if you have a conservative Christian in your life, which I'm sure both of you do at some point in your life uh, and still probably do, and they ask you or, you know, they, they start asking you all these questions around communism. What is it that you hope that they would understand? Because I'm sure for a conservative Christian, there's all these misconceptions about communism. So what is it the one thing that you would hope that they would understand about communism and Christianity? Yeah, I think if I was talking with a conservative, the one thing that I would want people to understand is that the very first response the Christian community had to Jesus Christ's life and eventually his resurrection and ascension, the very first response was communism. That uh, unadulterated, that is just what happened in the Bible. There's no other recorded suggestion that they did it any other way. Uh, the sign that they were people of Christ was that they were communists. They lived in a community where they didn't have private property on purpose. Uh, they shared everything that they gave to each other as uh, people needed, and that was just how it was. Um, there's a great book by a liberation theologian that I love named uh, Jose Miranda called Communism in the Bible. And in it, it's a, like a very short, very thin book. I encourage everybody to read it. Uh, in it, he has this great line where he says like, okay, sure, maybe maybe Christians are going to be like, well, still, I'm not convinced. Like, I think we could probably improve on what the early church did or whatever. And he's like, fine, fair enough. Yeah, you can make that argument. But the one thing the conservative Christian has to admit is that communism has always been a live option in Christianity. That is the mm-hmm. one thing we know about the Bible. It is a live option. So I would say, just say that to a conservative Christian. It's always going to be a live option. And, uh, you know, we we just read the text. That's what's in there. And I, I don't want to explain it away. It's important to take it seriously. The Bible says it. That settles it. Right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, in that Jose Miranda book, he says that uh, Christians can be anti-Marxist, like that's fine and understandable. You can have critiques of that philosophical system, but you can't be fundamentally anti-communist for exactly what the reason that Dean is saying, right? It's in the Bible and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, I mean, I think that exists, like things, those types of themes and those elements though, you know, they exist far beyond acts, right? Like, um, like in James 5, there's this whole section about exploitative bosses and exactly what happens to them. And, you know, in Luke, you get Lazarus and the rich man, and you hear exactly what happens to the rich man and why he's in hell, right? It's because he's rich. So it's like, of course, uh, communism is a live option, like Dean says, but I think it's just like, there are these themes throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, that are antagonistic to people who exploit other people. 
And if you're conservative, like, I guess fine, but you have to find a way then to deal with that. And when I was conservative and I did that, I became a communist. So I don't know what else to tell you, right? Like, but that's the <laughs> way forward as I see it. And maybe one other piece too is to actually zero in on Matt was talking about with that uh, communism as love piece, because I think, you know, you can get into these weird proof texting wars and I don't like to be the kind of person who is like, well, this is what the book says and therefore we should, you know, have an argument about it because it doesn't usually go very far. But I think the the real key is to zero in on like, well, those relationships that we already have in life, those experiences of love, of being out there for each other, of treating each other in ways that are not capitalist fundamentally, aren't those things that we actually want to see expanded in the world? Aren't those also things that we don't want to see basically privatized by capitalism? You know, capitalism has this like really nefarious kind of process by which it sucks in everything that is not itself, everything that is still part of the commons in order to try to sell it back to us, right? Like whatever people talk about when they talk about disrupting this or that industry, like whatever with Uber or something, uh, what they're trying to do is privatize things that aren't privatized. And like, isn't that gross? Like we don't like that. Fundamentally about what it means to be a person, most of us don't really like having that. If you tell people that like, your social life is becoming the the profitable sort of uh, sector for like Mark Zuckerberg. People don't like feeling that way. So I think it's important to zero in on that and be like, already there are actually parts of what we live our lives with daily and loving relationships that point us toward, shouldn't we lean into that instead of this other kind of logic? So that's what I try. It's not very successful, I, I have to admit, but I think I, I try to sort of key in more on that kind of stuff. But yeah, for the Bible diehards out there, you can tell them at least go read the book of Acts and, and get over it. <laughs> Just read the Bible, conservative Christian, and maybe... <laughs> At some point, you'll become a communist. It, it's so interesting how many times this has come up in this conversation where I think to myself, wow, the relationality piece to communism is central. And I know you both aren't process theologians, but I have to just say that as a process person, it's just amazing how many times that piece of relationality is key to communism. And it's really unfortunate that so many process theologians throughout history have not been socialists or communists, um, but have been sort of neoliberal-ish uh, types of folks. It's unfortunate because I think the connections here between communism and something like process thought is really really, really visceral. Uh, and and there, there's just these really great direct connections between the two. Um, I don't know if you have, to have anything to say about that, because again, I know you both are process thinkers, but I just find that really interesting. Not only yeah. am I not really a process thinker, I don't really know the first thing about it. So what, what do you, what's the connection that you see? Like, how does that work out in your brain? Because I don't know if I really see it. Yeah. So for someone like Nor Alfred North Whitehead, who was the philosopher that essentially created process philosophy and, and eventually theology, the, the main kind of piece to his metaphysics is that everything is in relationship with one another, whether it's the electrons that make up every single atom to every single species to even uh, our relationship between ourselves and God. Everything is in relationship with one another. And um, that piece that like he really makes this metaphysical claim that that actually is happens in the world. And so anything that we do is going to affect the electrons out billions of miles away in uh, another galaxy. And that also is going to affect our relationship with God because everything is in relationship with one another. And so I think that emphasis 
on relationality, I think there's a direct connection there with communism, that there is just an overall emphasis on relationality. Um, and so anyway, I find that really interesting. Yeah, you know, as you were talking, like, it's funny because what you're saying is so indistinguishable from like how Marxists talk about materialism. I mean, except for the God piece, obviously they don't like that part, but uh, (laughs) the fact that everything's in relation, that was basically Marx's whole approach to identifying capitalism because his critique of capitalist economists is that they, they actually close off the system in all these different ways. And by closing off their analysis of capitalism, they end up forgetting about, I mean, all kinds of other connections to both human beings and the natural world uh, and Marx was really interested in the sciences. He was uh, constantly reading about uh, chemistry and, and biology and physics. And that was his whole thing. It's like, if we want a society that that understands the connections between everything, we've got to get rid of capitalism for our own sake, because like, it will burn us alive, which is what it is doing right mm-hmm. now, right? Like the planet is being destroyed because it is not connected. The economy is not connected to everything else. Right. Um, I mean, it is, but like they don't. not in the right way so i think there's a piece of that for sure i mean i think process theology is interesting Uh, i've always been a liberation theology person uh so kind of taking some cues from the global south um and there are certainly relationships there you know there's some kind of like overlap figures like i know some process folks are interested in like Jurgen moltmann for instance who was -hmm. also heavily invested in latin american theology so there's probably stuff to be said about that for sure i think as you said though what i always want from process theologians is to be like yeah everything's in relationship and that is exactly why you should hate capitalism (laughs) that's what i want i want and i'm I'm hoping that there's more of us that are emerging you know some like Trip Fuller certainly is a socialist and uh, there's, you know, there's others of us, but uh, hopefully at some point the economic emphasis among process theologians does kind of change. Uh, with that said, how do you hope communism uh, and especially Christian communists inspire and liberate whoever engages with it? Yeah, uh, you know, there's a thing that Dean and I say quite a bit on the Magnificast, and that is that you know, reading reading liberation theologians, um, reading weird people from Europe who are, you know, communists and socialists and Christians, we always think that, like, at least one really productive thing that happens is that it does give you permission to, like, I think, be a different type of Christian and believe something different. Um, and it shows you that there's another way out there, right? That there's another way uh, to be a faithful person that is not, like, an awful right-wing evangelical Christianity. Um, So I think that there's that, right? Just the existence of like left-wing Christians in the world and like left-wing Christian social movements in the world, I think it it should give people a lot of hope who have, um, who are, you know, maybe in some ways grasped by Christianity and some, but, but like also hurt by it, I think just the idea that there's other possibilities out there, that there's another mm. church that's possible. There's another uh, Christian political ideology that is possible. So I think that that's good. That, that to me kind of gives a lot of hope, right? That just that there's, there's something else out there for people that is mm-hmm. um, that surpasses the, the bad things that the church has done to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is great. And to add on to it, maybe the other thing it might help us liberate ourselves from is is capitalism you know right (laughs) like i think uh it's it's maybe putting it too strongly to say that because it's not like if you go start reading communism you're gonna you know overthrow the system tomorrow uh an important lesson for christians to learn especially if you're like if you were like me formed at a formative time in your life where you thought you had to save every lost soul from from hell or whatever uh important not to bring that into your communism you'll drive yourself uh bonkers but i think uh you know one thing, uh, this woman, Kathleen Schultz, she's a Catholic sister. 
She used to be the secretary of this thing called Christians for Socialism in the United States in the 70s, an extremely cool thing that you should learn about. Kathleen Schultz, I was talking to her one time. She's very old now, um, but still doing like all kinds of activism in Detroit. I was like, what is it about Marxism that you think is important for Catholics to know about? And she said, Marxism has an explanatory power. Like you get an explanation for how the world works. And that actually empowers you to do something in the world because now you can see how the pieces go together and you can then see what pieces, if you took this part out of the Jenga tower, what would make it more likely to fall, right? Like when you go on strike, you're taking away the ability for a company to make money. Uh, that's that's the leverage in a capitalist society. It's not the ballot box. It's not like making fun of people on the internet. Um, it's it's labor. Like if you don't go to work, they don't make money. That's it. And like mm. we have the power. That's what I think is liberating about Marxism. If we pull the plug, the machine doesn't run. Right. And for Christians to learn that lesson is so huge. Like most people in the United States are still Christians. What if we were able to activate that kind of political consciousness among people who go to church? Like if you got everybody at your church to, you know, organize a strike in your city, like you'd probably be in pretty good shape. I mean, that is not going to happen tomorrow or probably in our lifetimes, but like, what if it did? And I think mm. that is the explanatory power. What if it did is such a good question to ask. Um, I just want to give a quick plug here too. Uh, if anyone does want to do that at their job though, please hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's got some resources. I, uh, I know people who can help. <laughs> Lovely. Last question, Matt and Dean, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? You can find yeah, us. I think the best way is just go... So go ahead, man. Just to go to twitter.com and uh, search for the Magnificast. Uh, that's where you'll find us. That's where we're most active. We've also got an Instagram. You can find us on, you can find our podcast, however, on any podcast platform you can imagine. Uh, we're even on YouTube. So that's something. Um, yeah. Come find us, listen to our podcast, add us and tell us you don't like us. Any of it is fine. Yeah, we also have a really neat Discord community for people who are on our Patreon. Uh, this is definitely a plug for our Patreon, I guess. But the people who are on it on the Discord are all fantastic. It's a really neat community of folks really trying to think this stuff through, right? And like, uh, it's everything from let's talk about this extremely niche Karl Marx thing or problem to like, I don't know, here's a picture of my cat or like, uh, I was at church this Sunday, we sang this weird Hillsong song. I don't know, is that socialist or not? Like, I, there's all kinds of wild <laughs> stuff going on in the Discord. It's fantastic. And uh, it's a good community to be part of. Well, I can't think of a more socialist Christian worship band than Hillsong. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Matt and Dean, thank you so much for having this conversation. I hope this is really helpful for my listeners. And it certainly has been for myself to really clarify some thoughts that I and questions I've had around communism and Christianity. So thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about it. And uh, hopefully we'll all become communists. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks, man. If you would like to connect with Dean and Matt and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>